Good morning again. I'd like to welcome our visitors, all those who are watching online. We are starting a new series here. Last week was our very first week. We're going to be looking through 1 Samuel and just kind of getting into the lives, kind of asking our questions. Do these stories still relate to us today? Um, a lot of times when we hear in culture today or, or people around talking about this doesn't apply to me anymore, that's an ancient book with, with ancient things that don't apply to us today, I kind of want to push back against that philosophy and say, I hopefully say, yes, these stories still do apply to us and are still active in our lives today. So just to recap, last week we had the very first chapter of 1 Samuel where there's some drama, right? There's a little bit of drama between uh, three people, Elkanah, Hannah, and Penina. And we took away three things last week that scripture is still speaking to us today. That one, that God remembers you. Remember that God knows his people and that God does not forget about you, even though at times it feels like he might. God remembers you. The second thing we took away is that we need, we need to be pouring our hearts out to God, right? When we are going through a deep period of sorrow, a deep period of conflict with people, things, whatever it might be, to take that time and to pour ourselves out to God, to literally empty ourselves to him. And the third thing is that we need to take care of ourselves. And that, that last one sounds so simple, but it is not so simple often, right? We read about Hannah where she pours her heart out to God and Eli sends her on her way, and she has some food, and she's no longer downhearted. Her face is no longer downcast. She takes care of herself physically, and her face, her spirit is uplifted. And we talked about how it's not just the physical things, but all the things that we put into our bodies, the things that we take in, whether it be the things that we watch, the people we surround ourselves with, whatever it might be, strive to take care of yourself, right? If God remembers you and he sees that you're worth it, see yourself the same way. You are worth taking care of. So last week we left off with a pregnant Hannah. And Samuel here, like, like uh, Tyrone just read, Samuel is born and she honors the vow that she makes with, uh, in, in chapter 1. This vow that she is going to dedicate this boy's life to service of God. And remember what we talked last week about was that Elkanah was actually in the priestly division of Levi where he served as priest. And one day I'm sure that no matter really what unfolds that their son would have eventually taken on that same role. But Hannah takes it a step further to say, no, not just his adult life is going to be committed to the service of the Lord. His entire Life will be committed to the service of the Lord. And we see here in chapter 2 that vow kind of comes to fruition here. But before we get to that, I just want to do a little comparing and contrasting, okay? As to the Hannah that we met last week in chapter 1 and the Hannah that we meet this week in chapter 2. So this is Hannah last week in 1 Samuel 1, 7 through 8, talking about the, the, the relationship between Hannah and Penina. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival, Penina provoked her till she wept and she would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And if you remember last week, that little phrase there, why are you downhearted, literally, literally translates to why is your heart bad? There is something wrong with her so deep that her heart is actually bad in the eyes of her husband. This also from 1 Samuel chapter 1. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me. Right? We have this downhearted heart bad, right, in the, in the heart of, of Hannah. 
and she is in a miserable place. And she's just crying out to God, please, God, just remember that I exist. And then we have a different Hannah here in chapter 2. And I'm going to read all of Hannah's prayer. I apologize, the formatting here is not my favorite. Uh, so just, just bear with me here. But this is Hannah's prayer here in chapter 2, 1 through 10. Then Hannah prayed and said, and before I read this, I just want you to have the old Hannah in mind, okay? Have the Hannah from chapter 1 in mind as we read this. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows. And by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, and she who had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and rises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, and he has, in, he has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So we have two very different people, right? Just I have this image of Hannah in chapter 1. She's crying out, please, God, remember me. I am miserable. And we have Hannah in chapter 2 who says all these great things. I love that there's thunder going on. When we're talking about this, right? This is cool. I planned that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that's totally a joke. Uh, bad joke. Um, but we have these two different, it's almost like two different people. And I hope that as you are seeing the life of Hannah, you kind of see yourself as well. You see times where you're calling out to God saying, God, do you even know that I exist? Do you even exist, God? I've been calling out to you for years, but you yet forget to answer my prayers. But then we also have moments like this. I love the comparing and contrasting that Hannah does within this, right? Looking here, the Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He does both of these things. All these things are working and willing through God. And we have Hannah here, you know, lifting her horn high, as it says here in, in, in verse, uh, verse 1. And my question is, I wonder how Hannah would know, or how she would feel in chapter 1 if she knew this is what's going to happen later. Would she believe it? Would she believe that there was going to be a time and place where she could be excited about what God was doing in her life? Or is she kind of in this miserable place where that could never be me? Or she would say, that is never, ever going to happen to me. I just wonder those things. But we see a radically different Hannah. It's almost like she's been vindicated, right? 
by God. She's been praying and praying. Like last week we talked, year after year they go to offer these sacrifices. And we thought again last week, how many times did she pray a similar prayer to this? God, please remember me. And year after year, she's not heard. She doesn't feel like she's been listened to. But then we have this vindication. It's like, yes, I knew you were there. I knew that you knew me. I knew that you remembered. Right here, my heart rejoices in the Lord. and the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. I can see myself in this position, right, where I have this adversary like Penina in my life. The very first thing I want to do when I get good news is rub it in Penina's face. See, I knew the Lord was listening to me. I knew the Lord was going to bless me one day. You aren't so high and mighty now, are you, Penina? That's what I might want to do. But what I see here is that this is not about Hannah. It never was about Hannah. It's about God. These words are so, so important. I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. You can feel the security, the vindication, like I said before, that she's experiencing by having this child, Samuel. And not only that, she's going to live up to her vow and she's never going to forget, right? She knows that God knows her, right? Look in verse 3 if you have your Bibles here. Do not keep it, the second, the second part of verse 3. For the Lord is a God who knows. Remember last week when she didn't feel like God remembered her? She now is proclaiming for everybody to hear that we're reading thousands of years later that the Lord is a God who knows. He knows what you're suffering through. He knows what you're going through. He knows what I went through. Hannah, he knows what I went through, and he remembered me. God knows. And so we get down here to the, to the uh, verse 11 here of chapter 2. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest, and the end of the movie has come, right? We had this fantastic ending. You can roll like the dramatic music, right? For some reason, the full house theme song is in my head. Right? I don't know why, but I'm thinking about that. It's like, yes, this, this vow has been committed to the Lord. This boy is put before the priest, and everybody's good. Roll credits. And that's not how the story takes place, right? Because we have this boy who's committed to the Lord, the boy that she prayed for. But enter some scoundrels, okay? And that's not my word. That's the word I read from Scripture. And before we get any further, I don't know if the word scoundrels used very much anymore. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. My dad would call me a scoundrel all the time. Um, my dad's a little older. I had an older, older parents, and like, he didn't play like I play with my kids. So when I was a kid, I'd push him or something. He'd be like, oh, you scoundrel. I don't know why that was his knee-jerk reaction to call me that, but that's what I thought of. But there's definitely uh, a more of an evil connotation to this scoundrel and my dad calling me scoundrel, okay? So we have Eli and Samuel. In credits, not so fast. Let's look and continue reading together. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and while the meat was being uh, boiled, and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. 
This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some of the meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. It seems that these boys, these scoundrels, they didn't like how the sacrifice was being cooked, so they wanted to cook it for themselves, okay? Which is not okay in the temple, right? Continue reading here. Now, Eli was very old. This is later in verse 22. Eli was very old and heard about everything his sons were doing in all of Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Again, not an ideal scenario, right, for people who are serving in the Lord's house to be acting. Again, these boys are not the scoundrels that my dad would refer to me. These guys are scoundrels to the point where they're desecrating the house of the Lord and they're the son of Eli. That's not a great look. It's not a great look. It's tough behavior, really, for a couple of priests. Uh, literally, if you look here in, in verse, in verse um, 12, where it talks about they had no regard for the Lord, the literal translation of that is they did not know the Lord. Okay, and you're saying, you're saying to yourself, how on earth do these boys who are the son of the high priest Eli... One of the judges of Israel, how do they not even know the Lord? It seems like they should be like bathed in this, right? They should be saturated with knowledge of the Lord. How can this even be possible? But chapter 2 gives us a very different story, right? Chapter 2 of, of, of Samuel, of 1 Samuel, kind of gives us this, like, this dual dichotomy of this blessing and curse, okay? We have this blessing of Samuel and we have the curses of the sons of Eli. Back and forward, black, back and forward, we have blessings and we have curses. And I'm sure you've heard this, uh, this phrase before, it's a blessing and a curse. I want you to have that in mind as we read, kind of, as we're kind of processing through 1 Samuel chapter 2. Because we have the life, right, the full house theme song being played over the life of Samuel, but then we have these scoundrels and the sons of Eli, these blessings and these curses. And I want you to have that in mind, and I want you to have this in mind as well, because I'm sure you've heard this before. So I want you to think of something in your life that's also, that is a blessing, but also a curse. Okay? A blessing and a curse. Don't look at your kids right now, Okay? Um, but I, I thought of a few examples, okay? Sometimes money can be a blessing and a curse, right? Sometimes, you know, you want to be able to, you know, provide for your family, but then sometimes money gets in the way of that very thing, right? You start spending it on frivolous things, or you start worrying about it too much, and as much as it is a blessing at times, it can also be a curse. I think about fame. I'm not famous, right? But I've heard people who you know, come into fame and now they can't go outside anymore, right? They, they experience, you know, a level of maybe an athlete or an actor or a singer, like they're normal people, and then the next day they're famous and they can't even go to Publix or Walmart without having pictures taken of them, right? I'm sure that life is not one that I would want to lead, right? If you're a Magic fan, I think a blessing and a curse is this year we had the very first pick in the NBA draft, but the it wasn't like an obvious first pick like it has been in years past. So in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, geez, just don't mess it up. It's a blessing that we have this first pick, but it's a curse because we don't know what's going to happen. All right, that's just me. But the one that I think we can all resonate with, if you've ever been to a Chinese buffet, is that Chinese buffet often have ice cream. That's a blessing and a curse, big time, right? Because you eat all this food, and then it's like, wait, there's ice cream still. 
Ice cream is a huge blessing, but man, that's going to make my stomach hurt if I continue eating, right? So you might have something in your mind, these blessings and these curses, but what I've kind of come to kind of realize is that kind of the, the moral from that is that every good thing isn't all good, right? Every good thing isn't all good. Think about money, think about fame, think about whatever you were thinking about in that when we inherit something that is considered to be good, it's not necessarily all good. And it, we can kind of fall into some bad places if we think it is, right? We start trusting in that more than we trust in other things. And we don't know everything that's going on, but it doesn't seem to make sense. How did all of this go so badly for Eli, right? Because we kind of get dropped into the story. Like in chapter 2, their names aren't really mentioned at all. At the very end, when, when there's a curse on the family, and their names are barely mentioned in chapter 1. I'm talking about um, Hophni and, and Phinehas, okay? Those are the names of the sons of Eli. And, and the question is, where did it all go so bad? Why are they so, such a bad, poor examples? How did Eli let this happen, but also do good by Samuel, right? Because if we read this, uh, if you look at, at chapter 2, if you just look at a passing glance, the very first part talks about Hannah's prayer, and there's this blessing of Samuel. God has, has, has lived up to this promise, and there's this vow, and that she's going to live up to as well. There's this great blessing. But then Eli's wicked sons come into play here in verses 12 through 17. But then... In verse 18 through 21, there's this talk about Samuel again. And this is where um, Hannah would come and she would visit every year and she'd bring a, a new piece of clothing for Samuel to wear. And he would continue to minister before the Lord, the Lord. At the end of verse 21, it says, Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Ah, roll that music again. There's such a good blessing there for Samuel. But then, verses 22 through 25, the scoundrels come into play again. But then at the very end here in verse 26, the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature in favor with the Lord and with people. Ah, there's Samuel again. The blessing, the curse, the blessing, the curse. And then finally, there's this prophecy against the house of Eli where some bad things are going to happen to their family. It even says that some of your descendants are going to die in the prime of their life. That's not a great blessing for Eli to receive, but it's actually the opposite. And there's this blessing and curse and blessing and curse. And it's not just, and I don't want you to listen to this and say, okay, Jimmy, this is just a parenting lesson. It's not just about parenting because I think this entire story speaks and communicates to everybody. You don't have to have kids to hear something this morning. So my question that I want to kind of land on is, what does 1 Samuel 2 tell us about sin in general? I want us to think very kind of broad here about sin, about blessings, about curses. What does it teach us about those two things? The first thing is that we can become blind to the things we are to, the, when things, excuse me, we can become blind to the, to the things when we are too close. That's not good grammar. I must have uh, not typed that right. Okay, I apologize. But you get what I'm saying. We become blind to the things that we're closest to, okay? We become blind to the things that we are closest to. And I see this developing in the life of Eli. This blindness that he develops over time, and I believe we do the same. Just look at these verses with me. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. My question is, this is from chapter 1 again, okay? If you remember last week, we talked about this, right? 
My question is, how is Eli walking around and seeing this woman praying and expecting her to be a drunk woman, but he can't see his own kids doing the things that they're doing? Is that a valid question? He is walking around and he sees this woman who is doing exactly what she's supposed to be doing in the Lord's house, right? She's pouring out. That's what the verbiage says in, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. She's pouring out her soul. She's mouthing these, this wordless prayer. She is in anguish before God. And Eli's like, you're doing the wrong thing. But that same man has the inability to see his own sons doing much, much worse things, right? How can he miss the shortcomings within his own family? And as I question that, I start thinking about Jesus. He talked a lot about this. This is in John chapter 9. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he? The man asked. Tell me so that I might believe in him. Jesus said, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one who is speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who will become, and see, uh, will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. And Jesus talks over and over. And if you look through the life of Jesus, He's doing these things, and people are seeing him do these miraculous deeds. They're hearing the words that he's saying, but yet they are still blind to the very things that are preventing them from coming to know Jesus. Right? We talk also about in the the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about the sawdust and the plank in someone's eye, right? Where someone says, hey, you know, you have a speck in your eye, but they forego the plank that is coming out of their own. They can see fault in others, but they cannot see fault in themselves. This is a tale as old as time, right? As the Beauty and the Beast would say. This has been going on forever, where people are able to spot something, but forego the most important thing they should be spotting in their own lives and the lives of other people that are in their circle. Not much has changed is what I'm getting at. And we're good at kind of accepting half-truths in our lives. And what I mean by half-truths is that sometimes we can choose to be blind of some things because those things seem important to us at that time. For instance, um, I work with teenagers a lot, and a lot of the conversation comes around to, like especially when they're getting older in high school, is sexual immorality, right? It's trying to wait before they are married. They're trying to wait until they're married in order to, you know, have sex and, and, to, and to do that with their partners, whatever it might be. And what they tend to do is toe the line up to the point where their line keeps getting further and further away from God's line. You know what I mean? But the thing is, it's not just teenagers. We do the exact same thing. We say, well, as long as I'm not as bad as that person, then I am okay enough. But guess whose standard you're living by in that place? Your own. My follow-up question to that is, are you God? No. Your standard is not what you should be living by. You should be living by God's standard. And what I think Eli, he's seeing that, you know, oh, she's praying, she must be drunk, but he's not even seeing the biggest flaw in his own life, which is his own kids are messing up big time, and he's unable to see it. And we do the exact same thing today. But again, it's not just about raising kids. 
right? It's not just about the people that we raise and the people in our circles, our nieces, nephews, grandkids, whatever it might be. It's about our own lives. What are we choosing to overlook in our own lives? What sins are we saying, you know what, that's not as important as this one. I've triumphed over this sin, but this one's not as important right now. What are those things in your life? This week, I really want to encourage you to think about those things. What are you choosing not to see in your, in your own life? What are the things that you are saying, that's not as important to me right now, I can deal with that later on in life? And you might be thinking, okay, Jimmy, you're saying I need to see the things that I don't see. I need to be unblind to the things that I'm blind to. It's tough. I, I will admit that. I, it is tough. Because I guarantee the Pharisees, at their heart, have good intentions, okay? They're trying to do their best to, to do what they believe they're called to do, but they themselves were blind to what Jesus was teaching, right? And they should have known better. So I'm, I am asking you to become aware of the things you might be blind to, and I think the very best way to become aware is to recognize where you get mad at other people. Just pause for a second and think with this for me. Where do you see other people and kind of shake your head? A lot of times, if you're able to spot it in other people, you got it within yourself, right? It's the old adage, if you spot it, you got it. If you see someone who's acting very selfishly and you call them out for it in your own head, guess what? You might have some selfish problems as well because you see it in other people. For instance, I'm going to be very transparent with you. I was a very passive-aggressive person for a long part of my adult life. But the reason why I would get so mad when someone else was being passive-aggressive towards me is because I could tell that they were being passive-aggressive towards me. Does that make sense? I could see it in them because I was doing it myself. And a lot of times, sin works the same way. A lot of times when we see someone doing something like, ah, oh, that's the worst thing you could possibly do. I see Eli saying, ah, oh, this one's drunk in the temple. It's because he knows Okay, I'm not trying to make any fan fiction here, but I think that Eli knows his sons are up to no good. I believe that Eli knows that his sons are scoundrels, and he's able to see this woman and say, I bet she's a scoundrel too. And I think if we really think about our own lives, and we think about the things that we you know, see in the world that we get so angry with, we might have a little more of that in ourselves than we want to admit. If we spot it, we often got it. And my encouragement to you is to not just sit there and say, oh, I'm, I'm a slave to this sin. Absolutely not. We're not a slave to sin no more. We, we are a slave to sin no more, is what I'm going to say. And if you are seeing these things, I encourage you to call them for what they are. I encourage you to be bold, because I wonder what would happen if Eli had stepped in earlier, Right? I wonder what would have happened if Eli saw his sons and said, you know what, that is wrong. I'm going to step in and see what I can do. Because we see later here in 1 Samuel, when he, when he tries to step in, he says this in verse 25 of 1 Samuel chapter 2. If one person sins against another, uh, God may mediate for, the, mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? And this is what happens. His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. For it was the Lord's will to put them to death. It got to the point there where their hearts were so hardened that they couldn't even hear their dad anymore. And again, this isn't just a parenting lesson. I don't want you to walk away saying this is just for parents. This is for all of us. Because what does Scripture talk about Satan and footholds, right? We give Satan a foothold in our life when we choose to continually go back to that sin. When that sin becomes easier and easier to kind of just shrug off, 
we give Satan more and more footholds in our life. My encouragement for you is to be bold with yourself. And that might take talking to somebody about it. That might take saying, you know what, I am struggling with this. I need to talk to this person who I know is going to hold me accountable and make sure that I'm trying to live a better life so that I don't end up being a scoundrel, right? Like Hophni and Phineas. Because we do become blind to the things that we're closest to. The second thing is that it's not impossible to grow closer to God today. And this might sound like the most preachery thing to say, Um, but I think sometimes we get really caught up in today's culture. Sometimes we want to say, oh, I can't pray at work, or they're going to fire me, or I can't say anything about God in this place because people are going to look at me a certain way. Guess what? The cost of discipleship means that sometimes things aren't going to go perfectly for you. And if anybody ever says that you cannot pray, maybe it's going to cause you to, to alter the way that you maybe do it in public, but you can always pray, right? You can always do what God's calling you to do. And yes, that might, the cost of discipleship is very, very high. But I want to just encourage you that it's not impossible to grow closer to God today. I see the life of Samuel here as evidence of that, right? We talked about these blessings and curses, these blessings and curses. Yet every time in between all these curses, it says, meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. He's he's being brought up around these scoundrels. He's being brought up just the same way the Hophni and Phinehas were, but yet he was still able to grow closer to God throughout all that. It seems to me that it's not impossible, no matter what environment you're in, that you can grow closer to God. It is not impossible. I think about the culture that 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 our kids are in right now. Just full disclosure, this story scares me, especially being a minister and having kids that go to my church. There's the whole thing. You guys are probably thinking it right now. The preacher's kids are often the craziest ones in the bunch. I hope that that doesn't happen to my kids. But sometimes it does happen. And sometimes the, 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 the parents are so well-intentioned and, and they're trying the best they can, but sometimes things just happen. And I don't want that to be a discouragement, but I want this to be an encouragement to say that it is still possible, but the world is still broken, right? And it takes more than just parents. It takes a whole group of people to help encourage that kind of growth. I, I'm just thinking about this that Samuel at least had a chance, right? And the reason why he had a chance is at the end of verse 21, that I've read several times now, meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. You're providing the very best opportunity for this boy to grow up and know who Jesus, or know who the Lord is. And we do the same exact thing for our kids when we bring them here. Sure, they're going to be crazy sometimes. They're going to be kids that choose not to listen and choose to do their own thing. That's going to happen. I think back to my youth group, the, the one that I was in, awesome youth group. We were at all the events together. We would, we would ask our youth minister to come unlock the building so that we could just sing like, together. That was awesome. But guess what? A lot of those kids are not great people today. <laughs> A lot of those people chose to walk away from the church. But at least they were given the opportunity to know who Jesus was. 
And sometimes that's all we can do as parents. And sometimes that's, that's all we can do as people. And again, I want to reiterate, this is not just about parenting. It's about you, too. As an adult, are you giving yourself the opportunity to know who Jesus is by surrounding yourself with the presence of the Lord? Are you giving yourself a stacked deck in a way? Because a lot of people say today, oh, I can be a Christian and not be part of the church. I can be a Christian. I can watch sometimes if I want to. I can, you know, get in my pajamas and, and put on my computer or whatever. I'm not hating on the visual people or the, the video people. That is fine. But are you connected to a community in Christ? Because if you're not, I think you have a better opportunity to become a scoundrel rather than be like Samuel, right? Because they both did grow up in the presence of the Lord in a way. They grew up in the Lord's house. And one went this way and, and a couple went the other way. But at least they had the opportunity. And so I want to encourage you that it is not impossible, even in today's culture, to grow closer to God today. And it's not impossible for our kids to do the same thing. Yeah, we could say it might be more difficult today. I hate, I hate that cell phones are a thing that I have to deal with at camp. Yeah, it says don't bring cell phones. Guess what? Kids lie. They bring their cell phones anyway. And guess what happens on those cell phones? Drama. Drama. And I'm not an old man yelling at the clouds right now, I promise, because I do think there's some really good things that that technology has brought us and able to do. Like the fact that we can live stream here, and people have come to know who we are as a church because of this live stream. Okay, that's awesome. But the things that people say to each other through technology, sometimes at camp especially, it just creates drama, and it takes them away from that presence. But I want to encourage us to say that it's not impossible. Don't be defeated by culture, because I think Christ overcame culture. Christ transcends culture. We're not living to, to, to live in a world where this is the culture that we're going to be in forever. We're, we're looking to ourselves transcend culture, right? We talk about the Lord's Prayer, right? To make your kingdom come, right? To, make, to infiltrate your kingdom into this place now. We want to be that for people in any way that we possibly can. And if we want to do that, we have to adopt this. It's not impossible. Don't be defeated by culture because culture's already lost. Christ has already won. And so I do, I, I do want to, though, encourage our parents. Again, you hired a youth minister to be your preacher, and I'll always be a youth minister. No matter how old I get, I'm always going to care because that's when I came to know Jesus was when I was in youth group. I want to encourage our parents to make this your community. And if you say, you know what, Melbourne Church of Christ is not for me, that's okay. But find a community in which your kids can be around other people their age who are coming to know Christ in a, di in a different way than culture, right? Allow them to at least stand a chance. Because like I said, people are going to make their own decisions. My youth group was awesome, but a lot of kids made their own decisions and they are no longer anywhere near the church. But give them the best opportunity possible. Stack the deck in their favor so that they can maybe have a chance to know who Jesus is and get married to a Christian person and, and, or, or, or not get married. But whatever it might be, to be committed to a group of people who are under the banner of Christ, like I say, every Sunday. Give them a chance. And yes, that's going to have some awkward conversations where they say, I don't want to go to youth group. That guy, Jimmy's weird. We don't do fun stuff. That's the fun thing I don't want to be a part of. I'm, I'm getting a little sassy here now. But I don't want to go to that thing because this person's not going. Guess what? 
If you just come and be a part of it, I think your life is going to be better for it. If you encourage them, and the word encourage is a little too soft. If you make them come, <laughs> things will be better. You talk about, oh, not enough people. If, I, I, I got to stop. I got to stop. Because this is something I'm very passionate about. Because people, a lot of times people are like, well, there's not enough of this. There's not enough of this. Well, if you came, you would be there. And you would be part of the number. And this is a group that's worth being a part of. I truly believe that it's a, it's a group that's worth being a part of. Even if we're doing something silly like tie-dying church, you're saying, Jimmy, that's not creating disciples. Jimmy, that's not teaching the word. Guess what? We're being together, surrounded by other Christian people, doing something together. And we're living life together, and we're just being part of we're, we're weaving ourselves together so that we can do greater things for the kingdom together. It's so, so vital. And I think all these communities that we're trying to be a part of make this a lot more easy to swallow. It is not impossible to grow closer to God today. But guess what? It's, it's, it's a lot harder when you're by yourself. So I encourage you, as parents, bring them here. As adults, come together. Even if you might feel a little awkward for just a little bit, I promise you it's worth it. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for First Samuel in chapter 2, where we, where we read about these blessings and curses, and it kind of just boils down the, the, the complexity of what it means to be human, because really, this is a story of human life, where, yes, we have a distinction between Samuel and then Hophni and Phinehas, these blessings and curses being doled out, but really, this could happen in the life of one person. We're one week that we feel like we have this blessing, and the next week we feel like we have this curse, and we're going back and forth, back and forth, and it's, it's, it's hard. But I just want to be encouraged by this to say, God, it is not impossible to grow closer to you. God, but help us to recognize that it's valuable to be here. It's valuable to be part of this community. But not just that, that you're doing something in us no matter what, but help us to be able to see what you're doing in us. Help us to not be blind to the things that we're closest to, whether it be our kids or the sins in our life. Help us to wake up and see what's going wrong in our lives so that we can grow closer to you. So Jesus, let me pray. Amen. So we offer this time, if you have any needs to come forward, if you don't feel very connected to this community, please come talk to me so we can find a way to get you plugged in. This isn't a YMCA Right? This is not a rec center where we're just doing stuff for the sake of doing stuff. We're doing stuff for the sake of Christ. We're doing stuff to grow together in community. And if you don't feel part of this community, please let me or somebody else be part of making that wrong. You belong here, and we want you to feel like you belong here. But if you don't feel that way, won't you come while we stand and sing?